Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Read All About It podcast and I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by the author Michael J. Malone. Michael has had around 200 poems published in a variety of publications while he's also written 11 novels and one work of non-fiction. He has had a varied career working for the Royal Bank of Scotland after leaving school and then in the financial industry before becoming a regional sales manager for Faber and Faber until 2015. He is now a full-time writer, also works part-time as a clinical hypnotherapist. His first novel, Blood Tears, won the Pitlochry Prize from the Scottish Association of Writers, while his latest novel, A Song of Isolation, was published by Orenda Books in September 2020. Michael, thanks for joining me on the Read All About It podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Always nice to talk about books, Paul. Absolutely. And I, you know, just in charting a, a very brief CV of uh, what is an impressive writing career. Obviously, you've, you've got the 11 novels and the, the one work of non-fiction we'll talk about. What interested me, first of all, was, you know, how prolific you've been in terms of your poetry and, and publications. And did that come before uh, going on to the novels or have they always ran hand in hand? Kind of ran hand in hand. In fact, poetry kind of distracted me from the novels. So... I kind of, I've always wanted to write, so like probably a lot of writers you speak to has kind of been a thing that's been in their head since, I don't know, school. And, and I remember even as a wee boy holding a book and thinking, right, one day I want to produce one of these. So I just was always reading, always, even walking to school, reading a book as I was walking along the street kind of thing. Then it came, about 96 it was actually, I started to take it a bit more seriously and think, right, okay, I want to write a book, so let's just just get her finger out and do it kind of thing. And I started a novel which was published. So that was 1996, right? So that book was published in 2014. <laughs> so there was a long gestation period <laughs> for that. <laughs> um, so I, I joined the local writers club in here actually. And um, you know that way you're just, I mean, I was in my early 30s, but still I was intimidated going into this space thinking there's going to be all these folk with like massive brains and wearing cravats and, and that was just the women kind of thing. So, but when I went, they were just really just ordinary folks, just sharing their experiences and helping you learn kind of stuff. So I went along having written maybe 20,000 words of a novel. Um, and then I would go to all these like workshops on, say, drama, writing children's stories, writing just every kind of articles, every kind of writing you could think of, and uh, poetry. And I found that I had a facility for poetry. So when I was in sixth year at school, I was actually put in a kind of an elite class for hires. And without even realising, this teacher was seeding in all this love of language, well, which I had anyway, but actually giving it some kind of structure. And when I came to, and I never read a poem after that, and it was only when I joined the Writers Club decades later that I started to go back into the poetry that I'd enjoyed at school and thinking, oh, right, I can do this. <laughs> Where did I learn this? So that was quite weird, actually. But then I started to get published, and a few of us joined together in about 2002 and set up a wee poetry collective, if you like. So this was way before self-publishing became a big thing. 
And we did, I don't know, in about three years, we did about 60 readings throughout Scotland. And it was great fun. It was also a great learning experience in terms of speaking in public, because I was, I fully subscribed to that view that speaking in public was worse than dying. Right, it was a massive, <laughs> massive fear. I mean, now present me looks back in that and thinks, what the hell? But then it was very, very real. Actually, I remember going to a, a poetry slam down in uh, England, hey on why, a big massive poetry festival. And um, just uh, thinking, right, it's a killer cure situation here we go. And poetry, my poetry was not suitable for a poetry slam because the good poetry slam stuff is like immediate and it's impactful and it can be funny and moving, but it's mostly done with a rhyming kind of couplet kind of thing, the, the effective stuff. The mind was nothing like that. It was the mind that you need to sit and quietly read it in, in, in a corner of the room kind of thing and just let it seep in. But um, I thought, right, no, I'm going to try this. And I swear to God, I was, over the weekend, I was hacking myself. <laughs> but uh, I went and I, I wore a kilt as well, thinking, right, maybe that'll get me some sympathy <laughs> from the audience. I didn't get through my round, which I didn't expect, but I, I wanted that experience. But anyway, so the poetry did really well. It was getting, won some competitions, was getting published a lot. But this kind of urge to have a published novel just kept biting. For Michael, you've got to, got to do this, got to do this. So I got back to that very first novel, can I tidied it up? God, I could go, this is a long story, by the way. So <laughs> long story short, that first book, as I say, didn't get published until 2014. So I wrote another one in about 98, and that didn't get published until 2013. <laughs> but around about this time, I started what would become my very first published novel called Blood Tears, which you mentioned earlier. That was about 2003 I wrote that. And it won a prize from the Scottish Association of Writers for a debut novel, but didn't get published until 2012. So in that period, oh my God, the ups and downs were just incredible because I had such a drive to be published, but it was just getting knocked back after knocked back after knocked back. I went through two different agents, getting nowhere. And um, I have to tell you, there was a lot of duvet days in that period of time, just like, lying under the covers, licking my wounds, feeling really sorry for myself. But there was just a wee nugget that, no, no, we're going, you're going to get there, just keep going, just keep going. So eventually I did. I suppose, I mean, see from what you're saying there, I mean, I'm guessing in that period of time, you're learning so many things that I suppose all writers go through. So the starting point, you know, you join, you know, although it's a, an isolated profession and a solitary profession, the benefits of being part of a group and being able to not just to validate what you do, but then to share what you do is great in terms of joining that group. Then you've obviously got the, the poetry performance, you know, speaking in public. I always think, you know, that way when you're sitting in an audience, whether it's somebody reading a book, forming a gig or a stand-up comedian, I'm always full of admiration for MD who has the bottle to stand up. So I'm willing them to do well. So I, when I've done that, I think the majority of the audience are yeah. always willing you to do well as well. Uh, you're absolutely right. And what I've learned is if you, as the performer, are enjoying yourself, it helps the audience relax. So your energy transmits to them, and then they relax into what you're doing. Whereas if you're standing there, your knees trembling, your voice sounds like it's coming from the end of a tunnel, everybody's sitting there in the horror, it's like, oh my God, just get through this, son. <laughs> so I've always, I've, I don't have a bucket list as such, but one of the things that I'll, I'll never do, I always wanted to have a go at doing stand-up comedy. All right, right, cool. But the, I've got the big stumbling block is I'm not funny. But um, <laughs> well, that's a bit kind. 
But it's that idea again is you know just getting up and having a go. What's the worst thing that can happen? You just on stage. You just you get over it. But the other thing which I think is really in terms of being a writer, which is crucial, and you mentioned those first three books, the long period from when you wrote them, and as, as you say, once you've written the book and it's the best version that you can get, you're just desperate to get it out there. But I suppose it's teaching you know patience as well. I suppose over the intervening years of your career that space between writing the book and getting it published is considerably shorter, but it's a good lesson to learn, I suppose, early on. Oh, ab- absolutely. And and I'm, I'm actually a wee bit in horrors to think that if the self-publishing boom had happened when I had written these books initially, I would have been sending out grossly inferior products that were just, like, overwritten, like, just not good at all. So learning more and more about the craft of writing and getting feedback from people and... Um, all that kind of stuff and honing the craft and just practice, practice, practice. Because the first book had merits. I mean, the story stuck with me for years, but the execution was shite. <laughs> There's no other way around it. And it was only, I kind of, I put it aside, it, was, it became a book called A Suitable Lie. I think it was 2013, 2014 it came out. So basically, I'd been on the ferry to Butte and um I just I heard an interview on the radio about a guy who's been beaten up by his wife. So I'm thinking, no, that doesn't happen. And of course it does. So I went home, did some research and kind of saw that the whole thing had become, even in the 90s, had become a wee bit politicised in terms of not women are the victims, men are the perpetrators. And we're not going to talk about any other sort of aspect of this, not officially anyway. And it's not really got much better, to be honest. So anyway, I got sort of determined I need to tell this story. That's what I did, but um, as I say, the execution was was poor. I sort of put it aside and kind of thought it as like that's part of my apprenticeship, if you like. Um, every every author's got a book and uh, a file somewhere that was just part of that learning process. But as I say, I had a few books published, and I spoke to my present publisher and said, "Look, I've got this book. I've been thinking with it over the years. It just needs a wee bit of tidying up." And uh, she loved the idea of the story, so I went back to it and. Uh, read the first few pages and I thought, oh God, this is crap. So I kept the story and just started again, basically. So that opportunity, rather than this, to say, if I'd published that straight away, it would have been just really bad. And people would have looked at it and thought, right, oh, no reading him again. So I'm glad that I had that opportunity to let it rest. And I suppose that's a, I suppose that's a lesson for any writer that's listening, because subsequently A Suitable Lie did really, really well. And I suppose it, it, gives, you, it gives you that opportunity as you say, to go back and tell the story the way you want to, with obviously yeah. the benefit experience as well, and you get the benefits in terms of more readers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, no question about that at all. In terms of uh, the podcast today, what I, I like to do with every guest is kind of take you back on the, the literary journey of your life, as it were, and I take you all the way back to childhood, and ask you to pick a favourite book from childhood, and the book that you've gone for is a book called A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember. The thing is, I think books that you read so long ago, in fact, even now, you might not remember much about the plot, but you remember how the book made you feel. And I think that's, I'm aware of that while I'm writing my own books. But with that one, I don't remember what age it was. I mean, it came out in about 68, I believe. So it couldn't have been much further after that. And I just... This whole idea of a little boy learning he's got these amazing powers and uh, saves his village from like raiders by raising a mist. And then he goes to this school where he's taught more about his magic. 
it just completely captivated me. And it actually has given me a lifelong love of fantasy novels. I still read a lot of fantasy. I just, I just love that whole kind of humble beginnings uh, and making it good. But there's a there's a big journey to get there kind of thing. So um, you make mistakes, you learn from them, you move on kind of thing. And so I just, I just love that whole kind of arc of a character. And fantasy novels use that quite a lot. And I'm just a sucker for it. I love it. It's interesting. A couple of quotes that I saw about the book when I was just doing a wee bit of research into it. I think Margaret Atwood, for example, calls it like the kind of wellspring of fantasy literature. And Amanda Craig said, it's the most thrilling, wise and beautiful children's novel ever. And also, I think it's interesting, particularly for a lot of kids' books, it was part of a series. And I don't know if that then, you then went on and... and oh, yeah, yeah. I read books. everything I could find by, by Ursula Gwynn. And, and again, it's... She does the whole, a lot of children's fiction is like heavy with lessons for kids. And as an adult, I'm aware of that. But when I, when I was a child reading it, that was completely by the by. I was in here for the, for the story. And if you're learning things subtly, which is a lot of good fiction does, I mean, there is that um, research that shows that readers are more empathic. And that comes through the so many... I hate to use the word journeys, but that whole kind of character growth and development and upheaval. And you learn empathy by observing the hardships that other people go through. And Le Guin does that absolutely beautifully. And there are kind of like big themes in there as well. She, she talks about balance in the world because a lot of it's based on, I can never know how to say it, Taoism. It's all about the world having balance and uh, about the power of names. And it's uh, kind of like given... When, when, you, when you name something, you take its power away. And actually, as in my present work as a clinical hypnotherapist, I, I can see that has validity in us accepting and dealing with sort of the traumas of our past. If you name it and accept it, then it helps you to kind of move on. That's not what she was meaning by it, but that's kind of what, as an adult, I've taken from it. So, I mean, it has a lot of power and validity. What I always think is uh, fascinating about people like her is, uh, you know, she was writing, I mean, she died a couple of years ago at the age of 88, and that, I think it's the book that you chose as part of a thing called The Earth Sea Cycle. So the first book was, as you say, was 1968. I think the final book, Tales from Earth Sea, was 2001. So she was still writing them over a period of 33 years. But it's not only just the fact that she's done it over that period of time, it's to maintain that audience over that period of time is such an enviable thing. Yeah, and a lot of writers quote her as one of their early influences so what an amazing legacy to have just astonishing do you know it's quite funny when you you sent me the list through and if you'd sent me it through about three or four weeks ago I would have had to say I've never read a Russell Le Guin book but right. about a couple of weeks ago I had the book Voices in the house and I, I like the whole premise of it of the idea of like almost books where you know there was a one group had taken over a, a another country and the books were banned but it was these people that were secretly keeping the magic and the and the wonder of books alive through these secret rooms so i like this whole idea it was the strength and power of books under you know being threatened by a dictatorship who don't like it the idea of it but i started reading it and for the moment i've had to put it down because it's not i struggled i think with the whole idea of the the fantasy novel it's not it's not a genre i, I usually read so i've kind of had to park it for just now and and i'll maybe go back and, and have another go at it later uh, yeah, I'm a sucker for a fantasy novel. Just love them. You mentioned there about the part of the work that you do just now. I, I touched on it in the, the introduction as a clinical hypnotherapist. How how did you become involved in that line of work? 
Well, it was basically um, when I was made redundant from Faber, I thought, right, I want to give it a go as being a full-time writer and um, try for that as my career. Because, like, what's that, five years ago? So I'm in my early 50s. And I, I basically, I've had it working for other people. Just had it. I can't, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> so <clears throat> I thought, right, we'll stick to the novels and see how we go. But then... The reality, I mean, I knew I knew how difficult it was to make a living as a writer. And there's very, very few people who write who don't have another job. Kept it going for a couple of years. I thought, no, I, I'm just skint and I'm fed up being skint. So I need to have something else going on here. And I've, I've always been interested in alternative medicine. And I've kind of think that if I had my time again, I would go into sort of health practitioner work as, as a young man kind of thing. I think that's where my calling was but I just didn't have that confidence in my academic ability which was there's maybe a whole story around that isn't there so <laughs> a working class kid etc university's not for you so I was kind of casting around for something to do and um, a friend of mine mentioned that he and I'd known this guy for years and he just said oh, I've been doing hypnotherapy for about four or five years and I thought what how did that happen? And how you know telling anybody? <laughs> it was like some kind of secret. So I went and did the course, basically out of curiosity, but I really, really liked it. And I could see what kind of impact it could have in people. And it's just, the, the I mean, it's not it's not a magic bullet, but sometimes magical things can happen. And I've seen a, a profound change in people's lives. And it's basically, it comes down to a lot just for having somebody to listen to them. And by getting into this deep, deep state of relaxation. Um, and those two combined, beyond whatever techniques you can use in the hypnotherapy process, they, they have an amazing impact. So I really, really enjoy doing it. And I've kinda, I'm studying nutrition at the moment as well, because a lot of the people that come to me, most of the work I'm doing is for people who, it's anxiety. I mean, every, there's so much anxiety out there, it's incredible. But there's a lot of people who want to lose weight and... Um, there's, there's no point in me helping them with the emotional side of it if they're eating a lot of crap whenever they do eat. So I wanted to be able to say, right, okay, look through their, their menu choices, if you like, and then say, right, okay, you need to lose that, you need to lose that. How about introducing this? So that's, that's the aim behind that. And there's also there's a massive impact on food and your mood. So if you're eating a lot of ultra-processed foods, a lot of sugars, a lot of vegetable oils in your diet, they're hugely inflammatory, and that has a massive impact on anxiety and depression. So you can help your mood by eating the right kinds of food. So that has been a, a big lesson for me as well. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I, mean, I suppose it's a nice counterbalance to the work as a writer yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I am kind of a people person. I, that, that solitary writer's life, whereas it can be nice at times, um, you can get a lot of work done. I do need the interaction of other people. I mean, we're all social animals, aren't we? And I, I've realised that I need to have some interaction. And um, it's nice to be able to help people. Well, if I can take you on in terms of your book choices today, and it's to the next choice, which is your kind of teenage formative years book. And the book that you've chosen is Roots by Alex Haley. Yeah, so... <laughs> I went, I went through a period in my teens of that whole righteous indignation at the world thing. Um, I don't know if you experienced that, Paul. So I read everything I could about the slave trade, everything I could about the Holocaust, everything I could about American Indians. And then Roots came out. And that just sort of was in my emotional wheelhouse kind of thing. So I remember the TV series started 
And then it was it was just required viewing, wasn't it? I mean, everybody and every I didn't, didn't know anybody that wasn't watching it. It was just groundbreaking TV. As soon as it came out, I thought I've got to get that book. But that was one of the books I talked about earlier. Walking to school while I was reading. So I remember walking up Castlehill Road in the air towards Queen Margaret Academy. This book in my hand, and every now and again, just make sure I wasn't tripping or going to trip up on something. I just could not put it down. It was a phenomenal read. Because consequently, there has been some kind of controversy about certain parts of it being perhaps uh, plagiarised. But Alex Haley himself said that he just paid this guy just because he couldn't be bothered. We didn't want the whole sort of legal thing. And again, the veracity of it. But the thing is, it was, it was he called it faction. And uh, so based on fact, so he wanted to, they had this, as a family, they had this uh, tradition of telling stories of their past and handing these stories down through through the, the family as the family kind of progressed and all that kind of stuff. And that oral tradition obviously is important to the African at that way back in those centuries ago. And, and, and ourselves as well, the old storyteller tradition is part of human history really, isn't it? And I just loved that aspect of his, that was his approach into, that was his sort of, he wanted to get these stories down. And uh, so he, as you know, he went out to Africa and talked in the Gambia, or went to all these different villages to sort of find out the stories, what happened to, and they, this, it was the slave Toby, whose name is Kunta Kinte, and um, that was his, as I say, that was his road in to tell this. And interestingly, I did a wee bit of research on that, and um, one of the things he said, the researcher said, was that he spoke to so many people in the Gambia about his family and about family history, that it actually seeded it into the Gambia sort of tradition. So his fiction became fact. He told so many people that they started to believe that this was true, which is utterly fascinating. But yeah, it was uh, one of those books that I just was absorbed in it. It's funny, I think, because obviously that, the, the TV series came out in, in the late 70s, I think 77. So at that time, there'd have only been the three TV channels and... It's a phenomenon I don't think you would get now. I know you no. get, you know, this Netflix series where people seem to be talking about it. But as right. you say, there, there was certain series where it was the whole of Britain was watching it and talking about it. And particularly with the subject matter, I think it, it was groundbreaking. And then some people have read the book, but I think a lot of people like you would have then subsequently gone on and read the book. And it's interesting, I think, it's maybe kind of a sad reflection on, on the United States, for example. So there's still... Obviously, there's a lot of novels, a lot of books that are coming out that are still talking about that, that period, that really, really dark period in American history, which I think they're still trying to come to terms with. And that's yeah, over yeah. 40 years after Alex Haley is putting it front and centre of certainly a conversation in the United States. People are still having to tell those stories to make people face up to the reality of what happened. Oh, yeah, yeah, no question. And I even remember at the time there being news items on the BBC about having groups of black people in the States watching it on TV and sort of... And I think the power of that, being told a story in such a, a medium and with such a presence and with such a massive audience, it had such a power for those people. And it, and it probably helped a lot of people heal. So, yeah, that's, that's the power of books, isn't it? And I guess, looking back and how it's influenced my own writing, before that, I, I don't think I'd read much his, actual history. And, and any history I had, I enjoyed in school. It was like all non-fiction. It was all like facts, bare facts. And this was the first time I'd seen history brought to life. 
and the characters brought to life and you can see through action and reaction and it demonstrates what these people have gone through in a much more impactful way rather than just boldly stating the facts. And I think that helped me because I, I, one of my books is called The Guillotine Choice. And that's a historical novel based on, it's a kind of faction novel. And it's about, it's set in Algeria in the 1920s and then in Devil's Island. So I came across a guy in air, would you believe his father had been in Devil's Island at the same time as only Sharia, the guy that wrote Papillon. Wow. And, um, yeah, phenomenal. And he, he went out in a boat a year after Sharia did. I, in the novel, I kind of cheekily brought them together on the boat, just as a wee nod to Papillon. So which, which is one of my favourite. I love that book. But a lot of it's made up. It's not really what happened to Sharia. But putting, putting that aside, it's a cracking book. Like, I knew nothing about Algeria. I knew nothing about the history. I knew nothing about the French occupation. I knew nothing about Devil's Island, the, the topography, the flora, fauna, all that stuff. I think having read Roots and how he sort of handled the history and demonstrating it rather than like stating it helped me to build this world based on truth and sort of make it more understandable and impactful to the reader. So, yeah, that was only later that I could see that there were some parallels there. And just one other final observation on, on your choice of Roots by Alex Haley. I'm always impressed by anyone who's able to walk and read at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> I did that a lot when I was a kid, actually. There was a, a series of novels um, by Stephen Donaldson, fantasy novels. I did the same with them, actually. I just, I just loved those books, man. Well, listen, hats off to you. <laughs> well, you are listening to the Read All About It podcast with me, Paul Cuddy, and my guest, Michael J. Malone. And Michael, we are on to your third book choice in the podcast, and that is a book that you would recommend to anyone. And the book that you've chosen is Beach Music by Pat Conroy. Yeah, um, Pat Conroy's novels were a big part of me learning, again, writing. And I think that very first novel that I told you about when I wrote um, Suitable Eye initially, I think I was trying to be Pat Conroy. And only Pat Conroy could be Pat Conroy. He's like, he can, in some ways, it's kind of like full of purple prose, lengthy descriptions, and only he can do them as beautifully as that. Whereas I, I was just ham-fisted in my attempts to be like him. But beats music itself, I used to go to a, a writer's school down in Derbyshire during my summer holidays. It was a week in, in August in a Swanwick Writer Summer School. And there was a, a writer lecturer there called Hugh C. Ray. I don't know if you're familiar with, with Hugh, but he's lamentably been forgotten by the crime community. He was one of the first. Everybody credits Willie McIlvany, but Hugh, I, I believe, was before, even before Willie started writing the, the crime fiction. And he, he wrote kind of American-style thrillers, but set in Glasgow. He then went on to write as Jessica Sterling and wrote, God, I don't know how many novels in is that sort of persona. But Hugh was one of these people you could just listen to for hours. He just knew more about the craft. He'd forgotten more about the craft than I ever knew, kind of thing. Just amazing. And um, the first session I went to hear him talk, he mentioned Pat Conroy as somebody that you should look out for. So I, I went home and um, I'd read, actually, Prince of Tides, I think, before then. And that was the one that uh, Barbara Streisand made in the movie with Nick Nolte. But the first book I found was Beach Music. 
it's a massive book, it's about 800 pages, and it just touches on so many big things. I mean, there's, there's uh, the Vietnam War comes into it, there's the Holocaust, there's uh, schizophrenia, there's um, survivor's guilt, there's just leukemia, his mother's got leukemia. So in anybody else's hand, it would just have been a mess, because there's just so much in this book. And apparently the first draft was um, 2,000 pages. Because apparently he was paid a million dollars to to write this book, and um, he'd spent he'd spent the money before it was um, finished. So we had to like wait a minute, two thousand pages that's way too much. So he trimmed it down to the eight hundred. So it's essentially it starts off with the main character Jack McAuliffe, if I remember. He's in he's a food writer in Rome with his daughter, and he'd left South Carolina because his wife had committed suicide. So he'd kind of escaped and his wife's parents wanted custody of the wee girl. So he fled and lived in Rome for a few years to escape all that nonsense. But then his mother's taken with uh, leukemia and he comes back home to help nurse her. The descriptions in the book are just amazing. And um, I just loved his writing. It was just, oh God, I can't say. It just hit all the, the nerves for me kind of thing. Do you know what's funny? It's not it. It wasn't a name that I, I was familiar with, but then once I start, you know, that way you start looking into it and then you, you know, you're familiar with some of the, the books that, yeah. that he's written. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of them obviously were turned into films. You mentioned Prince of Tides. It was interesting, you, you made a point, because we were talking earlier about the things that you, you learn over your years as a writer. And that idea you touch upon of, initially, I think sometimes when people start writing, they do try to replicate and imitate people that they admire and books that they, yeah. they enjoy. And I suppose it's, it's a process of you still enjoy the kind of the type of books they write and the way they write, but then you have to kind you have to forge your own style. Yes, absolutely, absolutely, and that that was a big lesson for me, and it took time for me to learn <laughs> because I just can Im- imitate him. He's just he's a he's a master um, and very insightful. But some people might it's not for everybody. Some people might find them a wee bit over descriptive, overworked, and melodramatic. But I, I just loved the drama of his books and um, that real human sort of insight actually um, and, and the thing is that most of his books are based on his in his life there's a book called The Great Santini and I think it was Robert Duvall was in the movie and um, <clears throat> it was based on his own his own father was a was an asshole he was abusive physically and emotionally most of his novels have got that same kind of theme of a, a sort of deeply flawed and abusive father and a stoic long-suffering mother who's got her own flaws kind of thing and then the children all trying to work around their father and mother kind of thing but interestingly with the great santini because it became such a popular book and the movie obviously helped that his father started to behave in a way that would kind of was very different to the way he was when before the book came out people would say oh there's the the great santini kind of thing so it, it, it was almost like that gave him a legend he had to live up to so he improved his behaviour, wow. which is astonishing. Aye? Aye. So, and he used to, when the book, I can't remember if it was that one, came out initially, apparently Pat Conroy, he's got a massive family. They, they would pick at the events and sell people, don't buy these books, because he's using our family history. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but despite that, it became hugely successful. And then his father would come to all of his readings, and he would even sign the books as the great Santini. That's, that's incredible. <laughs> Because I wonder as well, you know, that way, I think you've, the introduction, you've published uh, about 11 novels. Do yeah. friends or family ever read through them and, and, and see whether you've plundered some of their lives? I'm pretty sure that's on their minds when they're reading them, but um, largely 
come from a family of non-readers, so I don't have that problem. <laughs> but sometimes, like my my, I've got a twin sister, and um, there was one of the books, The Suitable Eye. She was reading that, and every now and again, she would phone me up. I've just come to that bit where you are, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is not me, you know. This is the character. So she kept transposing me into the life of this character, and uh, and then I would, she would phone again a couple. Oh, I'm just being in that bit where you're. No, it's no, it's no me. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember years ago, my dad. He's not much of a reader either, but he, he did read the first one. And I was I was in the room, and I, and he was talking to somebody about them. And he's like, I can't believe that stuff's come out of my son's head. See, in terms of the, the, this category, the, a book to recommend to anyone. Uh, how how easy or hard was it to focus in on Pat Conroy in terms of your choice? Kind of almost instant. He's been such a big part of that early part of my reading and writing. And, and I think every writer is influenced to some extent by books they've enjoyed, aren't they? He had such a big... I mean, I just went through all of his books one after another. It was that em- emotional content and, and the beautiful writing that kind of worked for me. And I think a recent... Maybe example might be the um, the one the Crawdads sing with the Crawdads, Delia Owens. I think she kind of taps into that. That's a beautiful book. It's the plot's a bit improbable, but I was able to sort of push that to the side and just enjoy the read. Yeah, it was it was an e- it was an easy choice, an obvious choice. I've, I've kept these books on a bookshelf, just sort of where I can see them. It's almost like a wee nod. How you doing, Pat? Every every day, he's I. It just had a massive impact on me. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Just just to kind of remind you of who inspired you and what you're aspiring yeah. to as well. If I could take you from uh, that book and a book that you would recommend to anyone to a book that you couldn't be paid to read again, and <laughs> the book you've chosen is Fifty Shades of Grey by E.L. James, which not only, I'm a, you know, obviously maybe not surprised you couldn't read it again, I'm amazed that you read it the first time. Well, uh, me too, actually. So what happened was I was working for Faber and Faber at the time, and um, I was in and out four or five bookshops a day, and there was a period where... Every bookshop I was in had a queue and everybody in that queue from teenagers to grannies and grandpas had a copy of that book in their hand and I was just staggered by it. And um, what the hell is going on here? And at the point as well, I was was given a creative writing class and I said, look, when a book's incredibly successful, I think as a writer, it helps to read it and just try and work out why it's so successful. That night, I think there was a kind of ad popped up in my Kindle for the first 50 Shades. I thought, 90 pence or whatever. I thought, oh, right, okay, I'll give it a try. I got a third of the way through and I thought, oh, Jesus, how bad is this? The writing is shocking. And uh, there was there was one line that it was just repeated so much about the guy, his, the, his trousers hanging off his hips. I think, why do you need to keep saying that? Maybe she thought it was sexy, I don't know. The thing is, like... It's okay, it's low-hanging fruit, isn't it? It's an easy one to go for. But despite the really, really bad writing, that book had a lot of fans. There was a lot of people, it was apparently at one point, it was the most left-behind book in hotels. So <laughs> people just didn't want to be seen with it, maybe, or take it home after their holidays, um, or they just dumped it. So there was like there was a lot of love and a lot of hate for that book. Uh, and kind of trying to work out why is it so successful? I don't know. There's there's all kinds of theories about that, but perhaps one that I can uh, subscribe to is it's that plays into that thing that some women want to sort of they may have this bad they love a bad guy and they might want to change him. I could be talking out my backside, but maybe that's part of it. But there was also it was racy and um, 
There was a couple of women I used to work with, like we went out for a night out and um, they were saying that their husbands hadn't had such a nice time for such a long time, <laughs> kind of thing, because of that book. And I thought, well, fair enough. It's kind of um, giving these guys a lot of fun. So who am I to sort of diss it? I was staggered when I when I just did a wee bit of research on it. I think a hundred and up to June two thousand fifteen, it sold something like one hundred and twenty five million copies, been translated into fifty two languages, and is the fastest selling paperback in the UK ever, which yeah. is extraordinary. And interestingly, um, I think I remember at the time when you know there was this kind of upsurge in ebooks, and one of the kind of byproducts of that was an increase in popularity. A more people were reading, for example, Mills and Boone because again. Maybe they didn't want to be seen with the book, but also erotic fiction, because I get for the same reason that people could read those books and maybe not be embarrassed. I remember um, going on holiday with friends and just the way the seating plan was, I was sitting in the middle. My wife was to my right and my friend's wife was to the left. So I'm sitting in between these two women and the two of them were sitting reading Fifty Shades of Grey, which was <laughs> kind of just a bit strange, surreal. <laughs> and, they, and they probably left the books on holiday as well. And I think it tapped into that sort of human thing of not wanting to be left out so it became a, a certain level of success and then people started to think well why is it I must have a look at that as well so it tapped into that whole kind of sheepish quality that we have as human beings so we've got to follow the flock kind of thing and as a writer it would be really nice if I could tap into that as well. I used to uh, I used to have a slime and I used to do sometimes do book readings and I used to always say my, my ambition was to be Scotland's answer to Dan Brown. It was at this reading and I said this and this wee woman said, oh son, you want to be able to write better than that? And I said to her, look, you're missing the point. I just want to sell a million copies, then I'll worry about quality later. I, um, somebody said something similar to me. They had read, uh, they'd read my book and um, they'd said, you know what, it was, it was the first book, Blood Tears, and um, it just had me in mind uh, James Patterson. I just couldn't put it down. And she looked, my face must have failed because I think his books are not very good, shall we say. Apart from his first few, I really enjoyed them, but then the quality is just, uh, anyway, I'm not a fan. So I was kind of like, dropped my chin dropped. I, I wasn't impressed at all with this comment. But then on reflection, I understood what she meant. As she enjoyed James Patterson and she enjoyed me. So it was that kind of page turning quality that she was looking for. She was looking to be lost in a plot kind of thing and that excitement. And, and again, who am I to sort of say, no, that's, that's the wrong approach. You want to be looking at this or that or that or the characters or that. She just enjoyed the read. So why why would that? So I, I met her again. I said, look, I'm sorry I reacted like that. That was just my snobbishness. <laughs> I mean, in terms of, of you as a reader, because quite often, particularly for this question, either people as readers or sometimes as writers find it quite difficult to pin down a book that they wouldn't recommend, either because it's a subjective thing, but also some people will read a book and if they're not enjoying it, They'll, they'll put it away, either never read it again or they'll, they'll come back to it later. So it's hard to have that negative reaction if you've not stayed. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I, I did kind of wrestle with that one as well because I don't ever criticise other books in public because I know the blood, sweat and tears that go into it and the difficulty it is getting, getting published. So I empathise with that part of the process so much that I don't want to sort of offer any disrespect to anybody because it is a, it's not easy. And if you've finished a book, then that is a, a massive achievement, even if it's not published. But then I figured, you know what? She's earned so much money, she can handle the <laughs> <laughs> system. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure if she's listening just now, she'll be shrugging it off. <laughs> Aye. And, and there's, there's also the fact that um, as, as a reader, you, can, uh, you kind of hone your taste, don't you? You know what you like. 
and uh, you know from a, a brief description and you know the authors that you like. So you're much, much less likely as an experienced reader to pick up stuff that doesn't work for you. And then if it doesn't work, you just sort of put it away. Because sometimes it's me in the in the, the mental space that I'm in that I just can't, can't read. And I do go through kind of phases where I lose my reading mojo. And when I do that, I turn to fantasy novels because they are just, I just dip into them and I'm away. So that often gets me back into it. But as I say, I'm just so well experienced now in my own tastes. But, and I do read widely. I don't just read crime and fantasy. I read anything that I can get my hands on. So yeah, that, that kind of helps as well. You tend to avoid the, the stuff that isn't going to work for you. But sometimes it's nice that you get surprised by something because I really enjoyed the Girl, Woman, Other, the Bernardine Evaristo, is that her name? Sorry. Sorry, Bernardine. And I, and I tend to avoid the Booker Prize winners because um, just that whole thing about one book being so much better than everybody else, I just I don't get that. And it, it tends to ignore so much good talent that's out there as well. Anyway, um, when Margaret Atwood and her shared the prize, I remember feeling quite sorry for Bernadine because she was barely getting mentioned. And um, I thought, right, I'll buy her book. So I got it in hardback and it sat in my bookshelf for ages. And it wasn't until lockdown I thought, what have I got to read? I'll, I'll just read that. <laughs> but oh my God, it was brilliant. Just like the first page and the, the energy and the attitude was just, and the various voices, just so well done. Absolutely brilliant. It's uh, one of the many books on my to-be-read list. And interestingly, what I've found, you, you mentioned something just a few minutes ago, and again, I think for people listening to this, particularly people either writers or, or aspiring writers, and one of the things you just mentioned in terms of why you read Fifty Shades of Grey, I think it's a really good lesson for people. If, if something is popular or really successful, you know, you don't have to like it when you read it, but trying, you know, that idea of trying to understand or at least trying to get a hold on why so many people are reading it? Because if so many people are reading it, they're doing something, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think as as a writer as well, you have to, sometimes when you're reading, you're reading as a reader. It's just so well executed, you're just lost straight away into the, the narrative of the book. But sometimes you have to read as a writer and you have to sort of work out, right, why is that plot line working? Why? And observe your own reactions. When something happens in the book and you emotionally react to it, just stop and think, right, why am I reacting like that? How's the writer manipulated me to that extent? And then try and replicate that in your own work. So I think that's um, a good lesson as well. Something that worked for me, certainly. We are on to the fifth and final book choice in the podcast, and that is either the last book you read or the book you're currently reading. And the book that you've chosen is a book called The Listener by Robert McCammon. Aye, so Robert McCammon is a kind of curious one because back in the 70s and 80s, he was like a real um, contemporary of Stephen King and all these guys, and just as successful, and just as won lots and lots of prizes for horror fiction. In fact, the, the book, um, he wrote a book called Swan Song, which is a similar kind of post-apocalyptic thing as The Stand from Stephen King. And I much preferred um, McCammon's book, but The Stand is the one that kind of gets all the attention. And Stephen King has dominated horror fiction to the exclusion of most other horror writers, which is quite... Um, tragedy actually he's kind of he's he's almost it when it comes to the horror sections in bookshops these days and, and and i even know some people who who were writing horror who moved into sort of still having that horror element but setting it in a kind of crime fiction backdrop to help them get published which is again is, is quite a shame so anyway mccammon i loved his books way back in in the day so there was swan song the wolf's hour which is about werewolves um fighting nazis 
Who would you love that? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and there's a there's a coming of age story called This Boy's Life, which uh, oh man, what a book that was! Just so powerful. So anyway, I kind of lost sight of what he was doing because he's not getting published in the UK, and he's still writing, and he's still as good. So I tracked down this book, The Listener, and uh, I just started it a couple of days ago, and it's got it's just such a good writer. Just as an immediacy, everything is kind of like action, action, even if it's just he's observing somebody's prose, is, there's so many active verbs in that that you, you just get kind of carried along in it. So I'm, I'm loving that so far. And I just wish there's a UK publisher out there who would get their finger out and get McCammy's book out to a UK audience because he's top notch. Because it's interesting, you know, you mentioned about Stephen King's The Stand, and I think one of the American TV channels has made an up-to-date adaptation of it, probably in, in light of what's been going on in 2020 right. in the pandemic. But it is interesting. What surprises me slightly, because, you know, like sometimes publishers, and to the extent a lot of publishers did it in the back of Fifty Shades of Grey, they see the success of that kind of genre, that kind of topic, and then flood the market with it. So it's interesting that obviously Stephen King will dominate because of his name and his success, but it's surprising that publishers haven't searched around for people of a similar vein, because obviously Stephen King establishes the market and the dealership, which they can tap into. Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. And it is curious, isn't it? I read somewhere that there was somebody came up with the opinion that the audience for horror, right, and they think they have a lot of those, and most of them are like maybe young men, have moved on to screen-based entertainment. So that audience is largely gone. And Stephen King's taking his fans from the early days with him. And obviously because so many of his books are made into movies, he's just got such a massive audience now. Um, I mean, there are some horror writings out there Horror writer, sorry. Guy Neville, what's his first name? Can't remember. The book called The Ritual, it was made into a, a movie. Oh, aye, there are there are some, but they, they don't get the same attention anywhere near it as, as Mr. King does, which is a shame. Interesting, before we, we started recording, we were just having a quick chat, and you know, I, I mentioned right at the top of the programme that your, you know, your latest novel had come out in September. It's been a difficult year for a whole variety of reasons, but certainly for people who have been publishing books, because the normal routes to market in terms of book launches, book events, etc., have been closed off. And then just this multitude of books that came in the, in the second half of the year yeah. is, is kind of difficult. So I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that for like yourself, you're hoping that if things start to ease up in 2021, you almost have a kind of second launch of, of the novel, as it were. Yeah, yeah, who knows? Um, the thing is, as well, the book world has changed dramatically because of the whole ebook thing. Whereas... I think a big lesson for me when I worked in publishing was that a book has only a shelf life of about two or three months. So if you don't hit your mark within that period, your book's gone, it's lost. It's just not going to get anywhere. But ebooks give it a second wind kind of thing because there's constant promotion, there's constant deals going on. And a, a book that maybe didn't get out there and do well in, in sort of paperback, it's still got a, a life and a chance as an ebook. So the market has differed because of that. I do worry about the Amazon practices and the Amazon, the fact that they are such, they've got such control of the market in the UK. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's good um, that anyone has that level of control, but they've been very clever about it. So that, that does worry me. But I do appreciate the fact that it does give the book a second life, whereas the bookshops, because I mean, in the UK, I think I read somewhere, there's something like 200,000 books are published every year. So if you think about the size of your local bookshop, I, mean, I know a lot of those are going to be academic books, but um, there's just no way that they're going to be able to stop them. And as I, my job was to go around the bookshops 
and sell in the books that publishers were producing. We had I had 20 publishers under my umbrella when I was with Faber. So they could have rented my services out, so to speak. So my job was like every month there's a, a number of books coming out. And even that, I could have like 100 books to try and sell in. And I'm, I'm just working for 20 publishers. So you get into a bookshop, they just don't have the room. So they have to curate what they buy in. So they're, they're obviously going to go for the big names. And then they're going to go for the, for the local talent. And then pretty much that's... Uh, unless I can persuade them, you know what, this book is just phenomenal, you can't miss it. It's, it's going to be great, there's going to be a lot of press, there's going to be a movie, all this kind of stuff. So the actual bookshops, they're limited into what they can stock. And and that was a big lesson for me, because as a beginner writer, um, and early in the publishing days, I just didn't even think about how a book got into a bookshop, I just thought it was automatic, it just arrived. But somebody has to make that happen. And, and, and it's... It's a curious world as well because um, there, is a, there is art here, but it's a, it's a world where art and commerce meet and um, they're not easy bedfellows. So the books that are maybe more artistic, that deserve attention, just don't get them. This is not a meritocracy. It's not the books that I judge to be the better ones that are going to sell well. It's the books that get the marketing push behind them. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a strange, it's a very strange world. I found it as a reader, like you know, I think I mentioned before, I think there was one day in September where there was something like 600 books published in the one day. And obviously, the ones that are going to get the publicity and the, as you say, the big names, the celebrity books. And I'm thinking as a reader, there's probably loads and loads of brilliant books, particularly brilliant novels that are, yeah. you know, maybe don't, aren't published by such a, a, a big publisher that are going to fall by the wayside that might have found an audience. Yeah, and even like the big publishers as well have a strange attitude as well they sometimes give people right a decent advance but then don't market the book so what the hell's going on there there were a number of um, publishers that i worked with where they wouldn't wouldn't sort of look to sell in all of their books to the bookshops which is crazy why would you publish something and not try and sell in because they would focus all of their attention on like key titles and these key titles would get the ad the spend on marketing and in all kinds of different ways and the other ones would just be it's like throwing mud at a wall and just seeing what sticks. But they're spending a lot of money on these books. Why not give everything similar attention? It's, it's, it's really as bizarre. Yeah, I've always felt that with publishers that, that marketing is actually the key. You know, if you market and promote the book. But I, I, there always seems to be that. I don't know if it's that kind of that still in that class between old traditional publishing where they just they put the books out and hope that the, the cream rises to the top. But sometimes you sometimes you have to tell people what's there. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely do. And if they don't know that it's there, how they how the hell are they going to buy it? I remember that again. That was a big lesson for me when I was starting to go out. My first book was picked up in 2010 by the publisher. It didn't come out to 2012, but I'd started working for Faber in 2012. So I was faced with the limitations of my lack of marketing spend every freaking day four or five times a day, because I would get into a bookshop and um, there would be hundreds of books from some of my contemporaries and one of mine, one. And I'm like, what the f- chance? <laughs> what the chance have I got? So that, that was incredibly frustrating, I have to say. And the day after day, I was getting this pushed in my face. I, I, I just had to sort of accept it. Like, okay, that's just the way it is now. Just hope and pray that that, that improves. I suppose that's the, I suppose that for you as a writer, that's the ongoing challenge that with every book, you're just, you want to try and build your audience and find a new audience. And I suppose ultimately 
it's something that you, you've always enjoyed. You said right at the very start, it's something you always wanted to do, to be that newbie boy who's a reader, to have a book of your own. You've now, you know, you've got a whole raft of them and, and that'll just keep going. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. I um, One of the things, when you start, get your first book published. In fact, I got my first agent and I thought, yeah, I've made it. No, I hadn't. I got my first book published. I thought, yeah, I've made it. No, I hadn't. You've just, you've got to keep on working. You've got to keep on writing. You've got to keep on meeting your audience. And that, that's a big lesson. You can't, there's no, the, the days of the writer writing the book and then getting back into the garret and starving on beans and toast, it's, it's just lo- long gone. You need to be out there and actively engaging with your audience in a way that you're comfortable with. Not everybody's comfortable doing readings or even like events on Zoom or whatever. You, you've got to find what you're comfortable with and then um, work with that. And as you try and meet your reader where they are, well, I think in terms of today's podcast, as well as giving people plenty of book recommendations, I think for anybody who's either writing just now or thinking about it, I think there's plenty of, it's almost like a, a, a wee lesson there in terms of the various pitfalls and highs and lows of, of a writing career, which I'm sure people will appreciate. Well, well, hopefully. I think it's key for us who are writers to be honest. Um, I, I think there's so much mysticism around the whole process of writing the book we have to just kind of push aside that veil and say, you know what, this is hard work. And you have to sit in your arse every day and do the work. And then once it's done, you then got to sit in your arse and promote it or get out there. Because your readers, are, chances are, they're not going to find you by accident. You're going to have to push it. And, and I, quite, I quite like when, I, when I'm talking in an audience to try and sort of get that across. Because I, I met so many people that shared their journeys. Okay, there's that word again. I should know better, shouldn't I? Cliche alert, right? So, <laughs> but I met I met so many people who were so kind to me and sharing their experiences that that I feel it's incumbent upon me to try and pass on some of that learning. I mean, one of them was, um, did you ever come across Margaret Thompson Davis? No. Right. So Mar- Margaret was uh, she died about three four years ago at the age of ninety, uh, having published forty six novels. Mar- Margaret was an amazing woman, and. Um, she took me under her wing and kind of gave me all kinds of support and advice. So it's kind of like somebody else said, you're just kind of standing on the shoulders of giants. And it's, it's good to be able to kind of maybe pass on some of that experience to other people so you're not going into it blind because um, it is a bit of a shock. It's like diving into a, a, a bath of ice water when you get published because you have a lot to learn. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, listen, uh, sadly, we've come to the end of the, the podcast, Michael. I have to say, I've Thoroughly enjoyed uh, the chat today. It's been really entertaining. Um, okay, well, thank you. Uh, really, well. really appreciate you being on the podcast. No bother. Anytime. Anytime. And, uh, and listen, again, kudos for uh, being able to walk and read at the same time. <laughs> I'm multitasking. Men kind of do that, apparently. But yeah, I can. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast. And I'd love to hear what you've thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. Keep reading.